morning, friends. It's such really neat to be able to be here with you, and, and I'm, I'm glad for the topic that we get to uh, that we get to talk about today. Uh, a little bit more about me. Um, live in Nashville now, but I'm originally from the great state of Texas. There's a couple of different kinds of people from Texas. Uh, I'm the second type of person from Texas. There, there are some people that drive trucks and they have a Texas flag in the back of the trucks and and a gun rack uh, on those you know above that flag and and they just hope and pray for the day when the Lord will deliver them back to the motherland. I, I'm not that kind of guy. I really, um, I love living in Middle Tennessee. I think Middle Tennessee is great. Um, and that's where we live now, my wife and three children. We live in Nashville, Tennessee. And But growing up in, in Texas, I, I grew up uh, being a part of the First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas, which was a relatively small congregation. Uh, Canyon, relatively small town, has about 10,000 people in it, small community. Uh, just south of Amarillo, Texas. If you're locating your town by Amarillo, Texas, that tells you a little bit about the community that you came from, right? So uh, that's where I came from. Brother Jim Hancock uh, was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas, and was there every single Sunday that I can remember. And uh, Brother Jim was one of these kind of preachers where you sort of felt like he could have an aneurysm every single Sunday morning. So he was a, a yeller and a screamer. He would start off in a three-piece suit, and by the time he got 35 minutes into his message, various pieces of that suit had been shed and just littered you know, across the stage, and the tie was undone, and he would have this vein in his neck that would start throbbing, and his face would turn red, and he was just giving it to you every single week, just giving it to you, giving it to you, giving it to you. And then at the end of almost every message that I can remember as a, as a kid, there would come this moment. If you grew up in church, if you, you uh, as a child, were there, maybe you remember moments like this. There would come the moment where Brother Jim would ask the congregation to bow their head and close their eyes. And he would do a brief presentation of the gospel and tell everybody that Jesus had died for their sins. And through Christ, you could be forgiven of your sins. And he would want to know... If there's anybody in the congregation, anybody in the room today that was not 100% sure that if they died tonight, they would go to heaven. And Brother Jim would, would ask you to lift up your hand, and then he would lead you in a, lead you in a prayer. Um, I prayed that prayer approximately 7,000 times when I, was a, when I was a kid. And my reasoning was simple. It was, boy, if I don't have this now, I want to make sure that I do have it when I leave, because if I do die tonight, I, you know, I, I do want to make sure. So I, I faithfully prayed the sinner's prayer almost every single Sunday morning. And yet, even as a, a kid and a teenager, there were a couple of questions that I came back to again and again. The first question was, why does everybody always die at night? Apparently to Brother Jim, nobody ever dies in the daytime. Everybody always dies at night. So I always felt comforted when I woke up the next morning because I'm not going to die in the daytime because Brother Jim says you always die at night. So that was great. Every single morning, the Lord's mercies were new. <laughs> second question was a little bit more serious. The second question that I remember walking away from uh, church services time and time again was, is this only about what happens when I die? 
does this, does this message connect and intersect with parts of my life right now? The reason that I had the question was, even though there was a faithful presentation of the gospel every single week, the vast majority of the teaching that I sat under did not connect the cross of Jesus Christ with the life of the Christian. It only connected to the death of the Christian. What an amazing thing by the power of the Holy Spirit years after to suddenly come to realize that the cross not only determines where I'm going when I die, but the cross of Jesus is actually the power by which the Christian lives. And the cross is the power by which sin is shattered in the life of the Christian. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is that intersection of the cross and life, and in particular, the intersection of the cross and the sin in real life of the person who follows Jesus. The passage that uh, I'd like for us to examine together is, is one that's probably familiar to you. Uh, it comes from the writings of Paul in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, we're going to walk through this passage together because I think it has some great things to say to us this morning about that intersection, and in particular, how the cross changes the life of a Christian as the life of the Christian relates to sin. So Ephesians chapter 2, Paul begins in verses 1 through 3, and he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So let's pause here for a second and acknowledge that, that Paul has painted for us in, in these few verses, in these three verses, the bleakest of pictures imaginable about our state apart from Christ. It's, it's bleak. You couldn't paint a more bleak picture than this. I mean, notice the description that he gives. The word that sticks out to me from the very beginning is the word dead. This is what Paul says. And you were dead. He doesn't make qualification or equivocation or separation between religious and irreligious people. There is no reference here to whether you grew up in a Jewish household or a Gentile household. There is no discussion of whether you are educated or uneducated, man or woman, slave or free, child or adult. He says you, and it's a collective you. What he's about to address here is the fundamental state of humanity. He says you were dead, and dead is a hopeless condition. I mean, if we were all to gather together 
again in a building like this for a funeral and there was a casket at the front of the auditorium and everybody was an open casket everybody made their way by to, to pay their respects to the family before the funeral got started there's not going to be a side conversation over here where you look at your buddy and then point to the casket and say hey I wonder what Frank is going to do later today Frank is dead he's, he's not going to do anything later today. In fact, the only thing that he is going to do is whatever is done to him because that's what happens when you're dead. You're powerless to alter your condition of deadness. The only way that anything happens is that it happens to you, not from you or by you, but that you are moved by someone else's power. This is what Paul says is the fundamental state of every person that's ever been born, that you are dead in your sins and transgressions. And if that wasn't bleak enough, he goes one step further. He says, not only are you dead in your sins and transgressions, but you are actually by nature dead in your sins and transgressions. Objects of the wrath of God by nature. In other words, you were born this way. Now, if you're a parent in the room, nobody needed to tell you that this was true. You know it's true by sheer observation. I've, you know, I remember when we only had one child and we lived in, in the, the blessed state of being naive parents where you had that, those few fleeting weeks where you think that you know, children are completely innocent. And then you come to realize the truth of Ephesians chapter 2. I remember with Joshua, uh, our son, who's now 13 years old. He's 13 years old, which is crazy. But when he was much younger than that, you know, when we had read all the parenting books that told us all the stuff you were supposed to do to make sure that you raised well-rounded children, and they talked about the ways that you were supposed to discipline your children we had adopted a philosophy of, of discipline that said we're, we were going to be clear, we're going to be direct, and then we were going to follow through, right? So that meant that if the, if the kid was doing something he's not supposed to do, we're going to clearly tell Joshua, this kid, this is what you're not supposed to do, and give him a consequence. And then if he continues to do it, then you execute the consequence. And the consequence that we had adopted at that time was time out. That's what we were going to do which is really an amazing concept when you think about it. You put a kid in timeout and, and expect that there's like these invisible ropes that are going to hold them in the timeout corner, but whatever. So when Joshua was young, I remember walking downstairs and he's sitting in the living room and he's playing with a box of Kleenexes, a box of tissues. So he's pulling out a tissue and he's throwing it up in the air and then he's letting the tissue fall to the ground. So I paused there on the steps and just sort of watch this happen, and it's kind of, it's really super cute that this is happening. Joshua's letting it, and then he pulls another one out, and he's watching it, and I'm watching him, and then, you know, my cheapness gets a hold of me. I think this is really awesome for a young kid to be doing this, but at the same time, he's wasting tissues. We can't have tissue waste going on in our house. So I go down to the living room, get down on his level, and directly say, Joshua, we don't do that with tissues. Stop pulling the tissues out of the box. And if you don't, you're going to have to go to timeout. 
So he looked at me and then looked back at the tissues, and then he pulled another one out. So then, you, you know, you're supposed to immediately move to the consequence, but it, you know, I was weak in my flesh in that moment, and I said, buddy, maybe you didn't hear me the first time, but if you pull another tissue, I'm serious now, you're going to go to time out if you do it. So he looked at me and looked at the tissues, looked at me and looked at the tissues, and then he pulled another tissue and walked and put himself in time out, holding the tissue up while he did it. Like, you can have my tissue when you pry it from my cold, dead hand. This is my tissue. At no point did I teach him disobedience. At no point did you sit down, if you have children, did you sit down with your son and daughter and say, guys, there's a really important word. It's got four letters. I want to make sure that you know it because it's going to serve you so well later in life. You need to know it. Say it with me. The word is mine. Say it. No, louder, with more force, more belligerence. Say it again. You don't have that lesson with them. In fact, 90% of parenting is trying to discipline them the other direction, right? That's what you have to teach because naturally they know how to pull tissues out of a box. They know how to say mine. Nobody teaches us these traits. Why? Because it is our nature. Now, we don't say that in pleasant, polite company. Of course, we wouldn't. There's no reason for us to do that. Like you're not going to go to a baby shower Put your stack of diapers there with all the other gifts. And lean down to this expecting mother. Put your hand on her stomach and say, oh, got an eight-pound ball of sin in there. Your baby is going to be so wicked. Just because we don't say it doesn't change the fact that it's true. What Paul is expressing here is a universal truth about sin. That we are dead in our sins and transgressions. And not only that, that we were born this way. Now if you read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 and you start to dwell on that truth. That all of us, regardless of where we come from, regardless of how educated we are, regardless of, of what skin tone we have, regardless of how much we've read the Bible, regardless of how much religious training we've had, it doesn't matter that all of us are dead in our sins and transgressions. And by our nature, we were born that way. If you really start internalizing those truths, then by the time you get to verse 3, you are feeling a sense of great danger of peril, that we are in the worst way, the worst news possible has just been expressed to us. Or maybe you don't feel that way. I mean, surely there's a lot of people in the world who would read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 and say, well, I don't, I don't feel any real danger because I don't feel like I'm a sinner. And I certainly don't feel like I need to be rescued from my sin. I don't feel like it at all. In fact, I feel like I'm a pretty good 
moral, reasonable person. So, I mean, you're telling me that I'm in great danger because of my sin, but I don't feel that at all. Well, I would propose back to an attitude like that, that our awareness of the danger is not an accurate representation of the amount of danger. In fact, it's actually the opposite. That our inability to sense the gravity of the danger of we in, or we're in doesn't mean we're not in danger. It only serves to highlight the amount of danger that we're actually in. You might think of it like this. Let's say that you were to go uh, to, to uh, Africa and you're going to go on an African safari. And so you find yourself out on the savanna, which is relatively flat, with a guide. And all of a sudden the guide tells you to crouch down behind uh, a cropping of rocks. And so you do. And he points out that out there in the distance there is a pride of lions. And we should be safe if we're just here behind these rocks. But we want to stay close to the jeep in case they start charging or moving so we can get in and get away. Now you might feel a sense of danger because you know enough about a pride of lions to know that you don't want to be any closer to that pride of lions than you currently are now. You feel that danger. You're aware of it in the distance. But let's say that you're not in Africa. Let's say that instead you're in South America. And instead of being on a savanna, you're walking through a lush rainforest where everything is green and everything is shadowed because of the canopy of the trees. But you're strolling through in a careless way. But because everything is in the shadows and because everything is green, you don't realize that you're about to put your foot down on a poisonous snake that has been camouflaged by what's around you. You have no feeling or sense of the magnitude of the danger that you're in. That doesn't change the reality of the danger. In fact, it actually highlights it because you're oblivious to it. The fact that the majority of the world would not feel a sense of impending danger and dread and peril because of our sin doesn't mean the danger is not there. It only serves to prove Paul's point that we are so dead in our sins and transgressions that we don't even realize how dead we are. So we're in a bad way in the first three verses here. And then Paul introduces the cross, which changes everything. And he does so with two wonderful words. Two words, six letters that change everything. And the two words are, but God. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God. You were powerless to change your condition of being an object of his wrath, but God. You were convinced of the truth of your own way, but God. You would have merrily and happily walked your way straight into hell, but God. But God, who was and is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. And not only that, he says, 
He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you have had a but God moment. Now, to your perception, that but God moment might have been a visible, cataclysmic, world-changing, completely one side to the other, different. But it may have been more imperceptible than that. That your but God moment might have come when you were a child. It might have come through a conversation with a mother or a father. It might have come when you were at a youth camp. It might have come over the course of a period of lengthy deliberation. But make no mistake, you, you've had a but God moment. And the but God moment is when God took what was dead and made it alive again. You know, maybe you've heard the phrase, I've heard it before in... in um, sort of scholarly conversations where uh, someone has said about Christians um, that Christianity is a crutch for the weak. Most of the time when, when that phrase is said, it's, it's disparaging in nature, right? It's, it's negative. Um, what people usually mean when they say that is that, you know, you Christians believe in what Madeline Langle called the hilariously impossible. That you believe in a cross and a resurrection, and even maybe beyond that, you believe in a God that controls all of these things and somehow is taking all of these uh, crooked sticks and drawing a straight line to the throne of Jesus Christ. You, you believe in that, but you only believe in that because you're not strong enough to accept the truth. The truth is, if you're intellectually honest, the truth is that everything happens at random, that we're all just a bunch of protons and neutrons and electrons running into each other, and sometimes that causes chaos, and every once in a while something happens that's good. That's the truth of the random nature of the universe, and if you can't believe that, well, your faith is a crutch for the weak. Well, the phrase is wrong. It's wrong, of course, because it's wrong, but it's also wrong because it gives us a little bit too much credit. According to Ephesians chapter 2, Christianity is not a crutch for the weak. Christianity is a stretcher for the dead. Christianity isn't the promise to make bad people a little bit better. Christianity is the promise that God takes dead things and makes them alive again. I mean, think about the illustration that Paul has laid out here. Perhaps you've heard someone talk about the gospel in, in terms like this. I Certainly I have. Uh, an illustration that would go something like, you know, imagine you were in the middle of the ocean. You find yourself in the middle of the ocean. And there's no boats around anywhere. You can't see any hope for rescue. And you're a pretty good swimmer, so you've started to tread water. But you know enough to know that your legs and your arms and your lungs, they're only going to hold out for so long. So you're doing the best you can to stay above the water line. But the more you tread water, the more you kick your feet, the more tired you get. And then suddenly you feel yourself start to slip below that water line. And you take on that first gulp of salty brine and you cough it out. And you know it's not long until you're, you're going to drown. And then all of a sudden, at the last possible moment, there's a life preserver 
that comes out of nowhere. You didn't realize that a boat had been approaching, and with your last ounce of strength, you reach up and you grab that life preserver, and you're pulled to safety. Well, the illustration might go, the life preserver is the cross, and faith is the strength that you use to grab and pull it up and bring you into safety. Now, I get the purpose of the illustration. I really, really do. It's meant to say some of the same things that we've said here this morning, that you were in a tremendous amount of danger, that you really couldn't save yourself, and only through the work of Jesus, who throws the life preserver, can you 